Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Okay, welcome again to our monthly How to Fix Democracy Zoom seminar. Um, it's the August version. Uh, August uh, is usually a sleepy month. Of course, it's not sleepy in our weird summer of the coronavirus of 2020. We have two particularly distinguished guests today. Uh, Anne Applebaum, the author of a brilliant new book, Twilight of Democracy, and Michael Ignatiev, the rector of the Central European University and uh, an acclaimed author of his own, everything from books about Isaiah Berlin to nationalism. Uh, before we begin, brief couple of housekeeping notes. I want to really thank the Bertelsmann Foundation of Humanity in Action for putting this thing on. Um, and I also want to welcome uh, guests from my uh, Keen on Lit Hub show. This, uh, this, this uh, show will be uh, recorded and shown on LitHub. And I want to remind everyone who watches on LitHub to also look at the full series of interviews on howtofixdemocracy.org. So all that out the way, let's get going. Um, Anne, your book, Twilight of, the Demo uh, Twilight of Democracy, is just out. I found it a really compelling read. You said it was a bit fluffy, but I think that's why I liked it. It was full of very compelling fluff, particularly the main thesis in your book, that intellectuals have been seduced by authoritarianism, particularly intellectuals on the right. You're a former conservative. I don't know whether you acknowledge that term. You're certainly someone who began your intellectual life on the right of politics, and you seem to be shifting, if not leftward, certainly into the center. Uh, is that fair, Anne, that the main thesis in Twilight of Democracy is the uh, seduction of authoritarianism on the right? So, I mean, yes, that's, you, could, you could describe that as one of the main theses. Um, you know, it's, it's a book about, um, uh, you know, as you say, it's a book about, not about voters, it's, and it's not about leaders. Um, it's really a book about intellectuals, journalists, nowadays bloggers, writers of memes, um, people who create and th the ideas and the images around politics. Um, and I'm writing about that group of people because it's a group of people that I know um, and I've met. Um, and, you know, I'm, a, I'm somebody who's written a lot of history books and they are They've, you know, they've been books about big subjects, big historical changes, um, the, the communization of Eastern Europe after the war by the Red Army, the, um, the, 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 the history of the Gulag. And I always tried to write those books from a lot of different perspectives, you know, to show how the event looks from different angles. Um, and this is not a book like that. It is, when, I, when I said that it was fluffy just now before we, before we went live, what I meant was it doesn't have a big thesis. It doesn't have a... Um, it's not a political science tract. It's not a major history. It's really a personal view of events that I lived through over the last, you know, 20 or 30 years. Um, and it's true that I would have described myself 20 years ago as a conservative. I actually haven't for some time. I mean, it's not, it's not a sudden revelation. Um, it, you know, that I would say I stopped thinking that way or stopped, would have stopped voting that way even um, probably 15 years ago, but I still have acquaintances and friends and and people that I know or have met on on the right, and I and the book is partly about some of them. Um, and I suppose the thesis is actually a little broader than the one that you state, namely that I think authoritarianism and the ideas, you know, the the, the idea of a of a one party state or of a of a single leader state um, can be attractive to any society and any group of people. You know, you, my, my, my original history, my, my history books have all been about the far left and the attraction of, 
um, a you know, communist totalitarian style authoritarianism. Um, and now I see a, not a similar, but a kind of parallel phenomenon happening on the right. So I do think um, there is always an attraction like that. I mean, I think that the founders of American democracy and the people who wrote the US constitution and then many other constitutions that followed knew there always was this possibility that people would follow demagogues or people would lose faith in the system. And a lot of our constitutions are written with that in mind, with the, um, with the recognition that there could be you know, that, that there could be a failure. That's what the checks and balances are there for. That's what the separation of powers is there for, was to prevent, um, you know, was, was to prevent democracy from collapsing into dictatorship as it has done so many times before in history. So I would say the thesis is, is, is that, yes, that there is an attraction on the right and that there is an attraction to human beings. I mean, there's a, all societies can be pulled in that direction, um, including ours. And uh, one of the things I loved about the book is the way that you use uh, Julian Bender, the French intellectual's um, very well-known 1927 book, Treason of, of the Clerks or Treason of the Intellectuals, as the kind of intellectual axis of your book. You are, again, without wishing to get into um, a conversation about whether or not the book is fluffy. You are, I think, suggesting that history is repeating itself, that it happened in the 20s and it's happening again, but it's happening in a different kind of way. Uh, Michael, you've written a lot about the history of nationalism and the crisis of democracy. Uh, you're living it now. You just uh, moved from Budapest to uh, uh, Vienna, because your university was essentially thrown out of Budapest by one of the new authoritarians. Uh, do you agree with Anne that this crisis is universal, that extends beyond Central Europe, beyond Poland and Hungary, and has actually a challenge this seductive allure of authoritarianism? It's as relevant in the United States or the United Kingdom as it is in Central Europe. Well, I've learned a tremendous amount from Anne's analysis because it's so based in her deep knowledge, particularly of Poland, but also uh, Hungary. Uh, and I am one of those who like the idea that um, what's, hap what's been happening in Poland and Hungary should give pause to anybody in supposedly stable Western European or North American liberal democracies, because there's a kind of condescending tendency to say, oh, in Eastern Europe, they haven't quite, they, they just don't have the experience with democracy that other societies do. So I like the general drift of the argument that uh, the authoritarian turn in Poland and Hungary is of, should be of great concern in the West. But I do think there are, very substantial institutional differences. Um, the guardrails of American democracy um, are not, um, they, can, they can break down. The guardrails of Canadian democracy can break down. The guardrails of British democracy can break down, but they've been around a lot longer. And there's a part of me that resists a little bit when Anne says, well, the authoritarian declension, the, the collapse of democracy itself can happen anywhere. I think it is certainly happening in Poland. It is certainly happening, God knows, in Hungary. Um, it is, there are threats to real threats to democracy in uh, the United States, but I just don't quite see um, the imminence of it perhaps that Anne does. And this may be, in other words, a, a, a disagreement of, of, of nuance rather than a disagreement of principle. The other thing I would agree with her about, and I think her recent book is tremendously important in that way, is that something has happened to conservatism. There is a flirtation with a kind of authoritarianism on the conservative side of European politics that shocks me. And there's a failure on the part of constitutional conservatives, whom I know. I'm a liberal, but I spend my life dealing with constitutional conservatives. By constitutional conservative, I mean someone who understands what the rule of law is, likes a free press, understands that democracy is alternation of power, competition of elites. They're at home with that. I'm at home with that. We're in different political families. 
What is amazing to me is the ways in which a certain kind of constitutional conservative doesn't seem to understand, doesn't actually get that Kaczynski and Orban are not conservatives in that sense at all. They're not conservative, constitutional conservatives. They're anti-constitutional conservatives, and they are profoundly dangerous to everything a constitutional conservative believes in. And I think she's put her finger on that with uh, stunning clarity. Uh, there, and, and the future of conservatism across the world will play out on the question of whether conservatives decide we actually like political competition. We like majority rule balanced by minority rights. We like a free press. We don't agree with those damn liberals about how big the state is and, you know, minority rights and this, but we, we believe in the basic institutional framework of a liberal democracy. And there are, what, what Anne has seen is that there are conservatives who've walked away from that consensus and they are flirting with an authoritarianism, which in my view and her view is profoundly dangerous. So to that degree, I'm, I, I've learned a tremendous amount for what she has to say. Uh, one housekeeping note. Sorry, I, talked, I, I had one, one task when it came to housekeeping at the beginning of this conversation. Of course, I forgot it. For our audience out there, please submit your questions to the Q&A button at the, the right-hand bottom of the screen. And we will stop uh, about 10 minutes to the hour. And uh, Nate, our Bertelsmann Foundation, friend will collect the questions and, and, and repeat them to uh, Anne and Michael. So uh, Anne, let's come back to Michael's first point about the universality of this crisis. Your, your, your wonderful book begins in Poland, indeed in the very room you're sitting at a party you had in 2000 to, to welcome the new century. And the book actually ends in, in, in the same house in Poland where you're sitting. Um, and, and much of the book and much of the narrative does take place in, Hung uh, in Poland in particular, but also in Hungary, deals with many of your friends or ex-friends in, in Hungary and Poland. Um, but you also travel to Spain. You spend some time in the UK in the narrative. You, you return to the United States. I get the sense that from your point of view, there isn't a great deal of difference between what's happening in Spain and the United Kingdom and the United States to what's happening in Poland and Hungary. Is that fair? So, no, that's not quite right. I don't, I mean, I actually don't really disagree with Michael very much. I mean, I do think there are differences um, between what happens in the US and what happens in Hungary, obviously. And I, and I do think, you know, Spain is such a specific context with the Catalan crisis and the nature of Spanish nationalism being so 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 particular. I I actually didn't mean in the book to suggest that you know it's all the same, um, but I did want to point. But 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 actually, Michael has also um, put his finger on the piece of it that is that it you know where you do see echoes across Europe and 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 the U.S. and 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 the the liberal democratic world, um, and that is this problem of the right. Um, and the splintering of what was a kind of, you know, this, the center-right was a kind of coalition. And the way in which the right is splintering in the U.S. and in Poland and in Spain has, is, has some similarities. That there is a, as Michael says, there is a constitutional right, a center-right, um, you know, a, you could call it a, a conservative right. And there is now, in a lot of places, also a radical right which is not conservative in any of the traditional ways, in, you know, definitions. Um, it's has, you know, in the US, it uses some language that doesn't sound that different from the language of the far left of a generation ago. It's one of the points I make in the book. Um, in, you know, in a number of places, it is very much divorced from constitutionalism, in some cases from, um, you know, from, from economic and political integration and other things. And also, it's a, it's a, um, these are radical right movements that do speak to one another and do learn from one another. And so one of the points I make in the chapter on Spain is that the, um, the you know, even the, the online behavior or the, um, you know, the way in which uh, social media is used on the far right um, in, 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 you know, in a number of European countries is quite similar and not by accident because these are often people who sometimes they meet one another in real life, but they all know one another online. Um, they follow one another's tactics. They use many of the same rhetorical devices. 
sometimes they focus on the same events and they, you can even see, um, I was worked on a project, um, you know, a year or two ago that looked at how some of this operates and we found fascinating. I mean, for example, when there was the fire in the Notre Dame cathedral, um, you know, a, a couple of years ago, there were, there was a far right reaction in France that was then picked up and echoed in a number of other countries and in other languages. Sometimes, um, you know, each sort of, it's almost like a telephone chain, you know, people would see the way, you know, the, the, somebody would post a meme saying, oh, look, Muslims were cheering at the site of the fire, and then that would get picked up and repeated in other countries and in other languages. And so the, the, the tactics and language and ideas are shared. Um, that doesn't mean that Spain and Hungary are the same or that the U.S. and Poland is, are the same, you know, by any means. But the, but the right is learning from, the, the far right, the radical right, is learning, um, you know, from its experiences in different countries. And so, so yeah, I mean, yes, you I mean, Michael's absolutely right. It is a book mostly about the right. Um, it's, it, I, I talk, you know, there are some allusions to what's happening on the left, which um, in some countries is also worrying, but um, it, it's a book about the fragmentation of the right. And, and there I do think that the, the facts show that there is a, um, you know, there is a, there is a similar process because it's an international process. Um, there is something like an international alt-right. Um, it is, you know, and it is, a, it, is, it is people who are learning from and imitating one another right now. And they are learning from the successes and failures of one another's parties in, in other countries. Uh, Michael, Anne does a wonderful job describing this, its classic kind of Nietzschean uh, resentiment of this new class of intellectuals. Seems some of them are angry with their lack of progress in career terms. Some of them are just angry people. Some of them clearly are just dominated by some sort of anti-Semitism. And again, it goes back to this idea of the treason of the intellectuals. You've had a front seat for a particular kind of treason. Your university is supported by George Soros. Soros, of course, was the guy who helped Orban, when he was a dissident in Hungary, educate himself at Oxford University. Uh, Orban then not only has turned against Soros and your university, but the idea of truth, the idea of open discussion. What, Michael, is your interpretation of why so many of these intellectuals have become treasonous? toward liberalism and the idea of pluralism? What has happened? Well, I think Anne's book helped me to understand quite a bit of it because, you know, I'm on the receiving end. We got, I'm talking to you from Vienna because we got thrown out of Budapest. I mean, it, um, and uh, we were thrown out of Budapest with exactly what Anne describes, the enthusiastic applause and support of a ressentiment-filled intellectuals from the right, uh, a Maria Schmidt, uh, I could name others, mm. who um, welcomed the end of communism in 1989. And as Anne says, a liberal like myself, a more conservative figure like Anne, welcomed 89 because we detested communism, detested Soviet tyranny, thought we were all in the same sack together, welcoming a world of liberal pluralism. And then her book describes, I think very effectively, the splintering of all of that. Uh, liberals like myself began arguing with conservatives. Um, conservatives began to splinter between this kind of constitutional conservatism and a radical conservatism. In the case of Hungary, we thought, I think quite mistakenly, that once uh, the Soviet empire was over, that Hungary and Poland would proceed into the waiting room of joining European liberal democracy, and they'd obediently sign up to everything in liberal democracy. They'd be bolted into the global capitalist system, and all would be fine. And in fact, history is resumed with a vengeance, uh, these counter elites that um, Anne is describing, the Hungarian elite and the Polish elite, are deeply resentful that the only, the only path seems to be Western European liberal democracy. They think, no, we want 
Polish, Catholic, conservative, our way. The Hungarians want nationalist, Hungarian, um, conservative, small town. And in a way, what I think, what you see very clearly in Hungary, and I think also in Poland, is that the post-89 change produced a liberal elite. The liberal elite privatized the economy, brought uh, Hungary into the European Union, pointed the direction towards uh, liberal capitalism, but at the same time got their face in the trough a bit. Um, a counter-elite, small-town, conservative, more religious, deeply resented that liberal elite and basically supplanted them. Viktor Orban put together a counter-elite. You see, you see it in power today that is now in the trough itself. Um, and its ideology is not a worldview so much as just hatred of Western liberal condescension. They hate people like me because they think I'm smarter than they are, right? That I have airs, that I'm pretentious. You are I'm smarter, aren't you, Michael? You're smarter <laughs> than all of us. My, 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 my wife could tell you stories. Uh, my, <laughs> my point being is that it is driven by resentment. Resentment of the condescension of liberal elites who thought there was only one way into the future. These guys want another way into the future. They want power. They want to use state power to reward themselves. And they justify this with a resentment filled ideology that says um, the liberals have, of, of. The other thing they want, which is very important, is they want a mono-ethnic society. When I come across the border from Hungary to Vienna, one of the things that is most striking is that in Vienna, which has many problems, you hear, you see Muslims, you see people with dark skins, you see ethnic pluralism. The one thing Hungar the, this Hungarian counter-elite does not want is Western liberal multiculturalism of any kind. I think the Poles are the same. And that's been the source of their power base because that speaks to small town, rural Hungary's fears that they will lose their identity and then we get back to nationalism. The liberal elites didn't, I think, understand how fearful um, the post-89 populations were about being integrated into a Western multicultural liberal model. Um, and so we're, we're learning, we're learning. But I, the, the one thing I would add is this story is not over. I mean, Viktor Orban and Kaczynski are not the end of the Hungarian or the Polish story. There are a lot more chapters. The 21st century will show us a lot of surprises. They do not control the history that's going to be written. That's why I'm an optimist here. I don't, I, I don't feel like telling a pessimistic story. Eventually, yeah, and, and I do want to, I, I want to move on to those chapters later. I, I was struck by your, your point about Vienna being the quintessential liberal city where your university is relocated. This was a point that Ivan Krastev, uh, again, another friend of our show and your friend um, made in, in his interviews with us. It's something that Tim Schneider talks about. Schneider's going to be actually on our live show in September. And let's get back, though, to trying to get into the head of of these resentful so-called intellectuals, these treasonous figures who have yeah. turned their back on democracy. Um, your book in part is a narrative of broken friendships. You have a section on Maria Schmidt, a friend of yours in Hungary who now won't speak to you. Sections on the Kursky brothers in Poland, one of whom doesn't speak to you anymore. You're also kind of part, I guess, of the Polish political aristocracy because your husband is a very distinguished figure in Polish political life. And get into the head of these people. Why are they so angry? Why are they so resentful? Why are they so unwilling to acknowledge any critical position that is in any way disagreeing with what they're saying? So I think it's, you know, you have to be careful not to make sweeping generalizations. And actually, in the book, I tried not to. Um, that there are different explanations for different people. 
Um, so one of the pairs of people that you mentioned, I wrote about two brothers, one of whom is the editor of the most important liberal newspaper in Poland, and the other is now the head of um, state television, which is a really, really radical and extremist kind of party propaganda now, which, um, you know, which hounds people in a, in a way that's really quite shocking, nothing to do with, with normal television at all. And to be clear, he was never my friend, but I, you know, I did you know, I, 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 you know, I know people who know him and so on, but I, I wrote about the two of them and how they'd taken such different paths. Um, and, you know, in that case, you know, if you look at his career, the career of the brother who runs state television, you know, you can see this is somebody who felt thwarted, that he was an opposition activist as a teenager, anti, you know, solidarity activist, anti-communist. Um, he identified with the right in Poland. But he never quite made it. He never really, I think he was elected to the European Parliament. He, he drifted in and out of sort of little political parties that never quite gelled. Um, he didn't become prime minister, which I think is what he thought he would be by now. Um, and he did develop this tremendous resentment of the kind of the, 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 the society that was created in Poland after 1989. Um, you know, which objectively speaking, I should say for those who don't know, I mean, Poland has had the 30 most successful years, you know, probably in the last four centuries, you know, in the, in the last three decades, just in terms of moving from um, being the poorest country in Europe to, to, to you know, to the middle. Um, all, all levels of society have, have gained in terms of economics. So this is not a story that you can explain with simple economics. Um, it's a country where, you know, which is much better educated, which is much better, has much better infrastructure. I was actually talking to a group of Belarusians who are in Warsaw yesterday, and they were waxing, you know, eloquent about how wonderful Poland is and how much progress it's made, which made me sort of laugh, given how, how, how negative Poland's leadership is now. But there was a group of people who didn't make it in this new society, and they felt angry about that, and they felt they deserved something better, and they deserved a bigger role. Um, and that, you know, that, and that for somebody like Jacek Kurski is a, is a, is an important motivation. Um, it has to be said that, that for others, the motivations are sometimes different. So I think, for example, for American and British conservatives, it's not necessarily always personal. It's also, well, in some cases it is, but it's also a, um, a kind of despair about the way they see society going. And so in some cases, you know, it's moral degeneracy, it's secularization, um, loss of faith, loss of some kind of traditional sense of family and community. And in some cases, I should, to be very clear, they're onto something that's real. Um, you know, modern society moves very fast. Things are changing very quickly. Um, I speak in the book, and maybe you want to speak about this later, about the way in which the nature of information and the, 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 um, the way in which people get and process the news has now changed so so rapidly, um, and there is a feeling, you know, in the in whenever you've had very rapid modernization, you know, back in history, and I refer, I talk a little bit about 19th century Germany in this context. You've often had people feeling some kind of loss, you know, uh, the, the 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 community that I grew up in doesn't exist anymore. The kind of family that I once had isn't there. And there is a, you know, and that this can induce a feeling of loss or despair or pessimism. And that kind of pessimism, when it becomes very radical, when people are convinced that their society is dying, you know, or it's ending, or, you know, it's declining in a profound way, this can lead to radicalism. Because if the society is dying, dead or dying, then it, you know, you could do anything. You'll do any, any extreme act to try and save it. And then, so there is a, so some of the radicalism, as I said, some of it in some cases is personal. In some cases, it's more intellectual. You know, people are just- incredible. Uh, is it a credible intellectual response? Uh, you talk about Laura Ingraham, for example, uh, Anne, who you knew, I don't know if you're still close to her, but there was a point- Never been close friend. to her, but I did know her, yeah. You friendly, you say, and she says, the only man to have never disappointed me is Jesus. I mean, uh, uh, how, how do you have conversations with people like that? How can you rationalize that kind of argument? So, I mean, actually, Laura Ingraham was somebody who strangely was always very off air, was always very easy to speak to and, and, and you know, not, not, you know, in, in, in real life was never, I don't think, especially ideological. That's what her friends um, tell me. Um, but you know, but she is an example of somebody who is profoundly disappointed with America and who was, 
you know, is distressed by what it has become. And her reasoning is partly moral and religious and partly demographic. Um, she too feels that America has become too diverse. And she's said this on the air, you know, that she's, she's criticized not just illegal, but legal immigration, um, which is, you know, in her case, um, involves some strange contradictions because she has adopted children who do come from abroad. Um, nevertheless, she has a, you know, she's, 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 she, you know, she perceives a decline uh, of the United States. And so um, she may be someone who it isn't easy to talk to or to incorporate or to bring back into a, a conversation, but that doesn't mean that everybody who listens to her or who is worried by the same kinds of things she's worried by can't be spoken to or can't be addressed. And I think, you know, one of the things that I'm hoping will happen during the U.S. presidential campaign, it's happening a little bit already, thanks to some um, the sort of pro-Biden conservatives, is that the, both the Democrats and others who are concerned about the direction of the country will seek out and try to find ways of connecting to people who are disappointed or afraid or bothered by the speed of change in the United States um, and want to hear um, some reassurance from people in power. Um, so, I, you know, I don't, I don't think that they, those ideas mean that you necessarily, that everybody has to become a radical and, and hate the country and, and become an extremist just because they feel this sense of loss or, or, or disappointment about the country. And I, I, one of the things that politics now needs to do is to find ways to address those those emotions. Michael, every time we talk, I always ask you the same question. You, you are the biographer of Isaiah Berlin. So I always say to you, what would Berlin say? He also came to a, a certain kind of intellectual political maturity at a time of the crisis of democracy. Would Berlin in his indomitable way just smile and say, well, we've been through this before? Or do you think he'd see it as somehow being different today in 2020? I think he would say we've been through this before because he went through the 20s and 30s. Um, and I think it's important to understand the sense in which we've gone through this before. I think Anne is saying, look, we need, we need to read books like Julian Benda's Treason of the Clerks precisely because of the ways in which the 30s churned up and reversed intellectual allegiances. And, and that book gets us to focus on the extremely important role that um, idea makers, taste makers in intellectual life, the enormous influence they have. Um, I think one thing it, that I find weirdly different between the 30s and now, which I think Berlin would urge us to think about, and I think Anne picks this up in her book, is there's no competing ideology here. There, there's resentment and rage and... Um, um, well, not in our minds, but there is and, in the opposition. And, and, I mean. and a, no, there's a, there's a hostility to a thing called liberalism, which is um, secular, multicultural, uh, relativist, um, despises the little people, despises people's cultural attachments. And so what there is on the ascendant in populist movements everywhere is a hatred of a, a thing called uh, liberalism. But th what there isn't is what there was in the 1930s. I mean, Nazism was a serious grown-up ideology of a uniquely hateful kind. And there was a huge ideology called communism, which traced back to you know, the Enlightenment to Marx. These were massive ideological formations. What's interesting to me here is that instead we're, we're looking at um, things that are really psychological states of mind and, and resentments at the achievements of a liberal world and the achievements of the liberal world should be criticized, must be criticized, must be renewed. But what, a, what I think Isaiah might be point us to is there's no utopia out there. There is no vision of a better world, more humane, more just, more fair, uh, more capable of attracting allegiance and belief. There's a kind of weird ideological void, and it's a void on my side of the argument, on the liberal side. Liberalism is a little tired. It's a little institutionalized. It's a little complacent. And it's facing this 
you know, conservative, radical right, resentment-filled hate. But there's a void on both sides here, which is very, very striking to me and, and in a sense rather dangerous. So, but let me conclude, since it was a question about Isaiah Berlin, I am his biographer, but the idea of being a ventriloquist for a guy who's been dead for 20 years is a very, it's a mugs game and I shouldn't play it anymore, but it's just my way of saying how much I learned from him. Well, he's probably watching this, Michael. You seem ubiquitous on lots of levels. Uh, and you definitely lead into Anne's conclusion to her book. She begins with uh, Julian Bender, the French intellectual. She ends with uh, the Italian writer, Ignazio Siloni, who, who, is, who has a much more positive take on liberalism. Uh, and, and you suggest, like Michael, that we need to make liberalism meaningful again. Um, you, you cite Mill, Jefferson, Harvel, uh, and, and it's this question of the search for meaning within liberalism that you, uh, you seem to say at the end of the book is our challenge, whether it's a, a left liberal like Michael or a, or a right liberal like you, we're all in the same boat here. We need to rebuild the meaning of liberalism. Is that fair? Yes, I mean, I think that was one of the one of the ideas I was getting to at the end of the book. This need for renewal, this need to re-inspire people. Um, in some cases, there are concrete institutional changes that I think we should be made. I don't really go into that in the book, but I think um, you know there 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 are ways we could alter our political systems and and rid them of money and and um, um, and the influence of dark money in particular that I think could make could make politics better. Um, but the, but the other the other point that I the other reason I was using Saloni for there were two reasons um, at the end of the book one was because of what he says about nihilism, and mm -hmm. his he had it was kind of crusade against indifference, because a lot of what you also see on the right is this nihilism and cynicism, um, you know Orbanism at base the reason why it's you know Michael's absolutely right that it's not an ideology is it's profoundly nihilistic it's very greedy. It's about co-opting the business community. It's about the members of the party getting rich. Um, it's, a, it's a vision of politics as a way of servicing, you know, our team, you know, or our people. Um, and this is a very ugly political vision um, and one that should be fought, I think, whether you're a conservative or a liberal, um, you know, in base, because it's a nihilistic, cynical, um, you know, politics as, tr you know, sort of transaction. This is Trumpism as well, of course. But it's a, didn't yeah. it begin all this, Anne? And we talked about this in previous conversations. Didn't this all begin with Putin? Isn't he the founding father of... of He's Putin one of them. I mean, it's not, you know, it's, it's, you don't have to be, you know, Putin didn't invent nihilism. But yes, Putin's version of, um, you know, uh, his particular form of corruption and the way in which the Russians learned to use the international financial system, um, and learned to try, you know, sought to manipulate media and so on. You know, they were they were the pioneers for a lot of this stuff. Although they didn't, you know, they're not they're not alone. I mean, there is a reason why the radical right is attracted to Russia, um, and uses takes happily takes help from Russia, um, and that's why because they 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 are the they are the font of this profoundly cynical um, attitude to politics. But of course, the other the other point that I make at the end of the book one is that, you know, it may be that. Um, we need to, because the, 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 the quotations come from an essay um, which, is, which uses the word comrades, and it's about trying to find your new comrades. And the, it may be that we need to also think about realigning politics. You know, a lot of the people, a lot of people who were on opposite sides only a few years ago may now discover that they need to make common cause. Um, that the, you know, the political parties that exist now, that's kind of center right and the center left, as we've known them since the Second World War, may not be any longer expressing the real divisions in politics. Um, and I'm hoping for a kind of, you know, realignment of politics so that people who belong together are together. You're seeing that a little bit actually at the, you know, the, the online Democratic Convention this week where you've had, a, you know, Republican Governor, um, Governor Kasich spoke yesterday and there was a medley of um, you know a number of interviews with Republican voters for Trump I mean as far as sorry Republican voters against Trump um, were also shown um, and that may be the beginning of what I hope will be a you know kind of political realignment maybe it will eventually lead to the 
renewal or reinvention of the Republican Party as well, which I hope will happen. Um, but the, but that, that, that would be the second message, is that we all need to look around and figure out, again, who, who are our friends, with whom are we, are we aligned? Friendship, I think, is really important. It's one of the cores in your book. Uh, one of the people we interviewed for this show and for our movie, How to Fix Democracy, which also addresses all these themes, was Eche Temelkuren, the Turkish dissident writer. And she talks about a future liberalism built around friendship. Michael, finally, before we get to audience questions, does the theory of liberalism need a new chapter? Is it sufficient, as, as, as Anne suggests, perhaps at the end of the book, to, to give Mill and Jefferson and Harvell a spring clean, make them look a little bit more attractive? Or do we need a new generation of theorists, a new way of thinking about liberalism, perhaps build it around friendship or some other kind of concept which 19th and 20th century thinkers didn't think of? Well, I think we need to take the measure of what has been achieved. I know that's a conservative way to start, but I grew up in a Canada that was um, in which it was hard to be a free gay man or woman. I grew up in a Canada that it, in which equality for people of color, um, a Canada in which um, a welcome for Muslims was just unthinkable. I, I, I know it's old fashioned to say this stuff and I don't want to take the liberal revolution for granted and say it was been wonderful, but God damn it, it was wonderful. It made us, it's made freedom real for people who never had, not, not just freedom, but recognition, um, uh, inclusion in a political community before. And I will defend that stuff to the, to my last day, because it is part of friendship. You mentioned friendship. The possibility of having good and deep friendships with people of other orientations in terms of their personal life, in terms of other religious faiths. A love of pluralism, speaking of Berlin, loving the fact, liking the fact that Anne and I have many things we have in common, but we disagree about some stuff and we'll disagree again. Uh, a world in which we relish that kind of disagreement and want to stay in the same room. Um, a, a world in which we're less self-righteously convinced that we're right at, at, the, at every moment. That's a Berlinian thought. All of this stuff is embattled at the moment, but I'm a liberal because at its best, it's, in, it's believed those things. The other thing I think is if I have to bet on communist China in the 21st century or messy, pluralist, multicultural, disorderly, chaotic liberal democracies, I know I'm going to choose that every time. I don't bet on Putin. I don't bet on Xi Jinping. I don't bet on Duterte. I don't bet on Orban. I don't bet on Kaczynski. I actually bet on liberal democracies. Why? Because they have a succession plan. You can throw the rascals out. And secondly, because they, they, they express something that I think is just so important, which is individuals matter. Individuals in all their pluralist diversity and difference matter. And we're in this together and we haven't got a hell of a chance of getting through the 21st century unless we understand it. Sorry to get into speeches, but I, I do think liberalism needs to be reinvented, but it can be only be reinvented by remembering what the liberal revolution, and by liberal revolution, it's a, it was a revolution made by conservatives as well. It was a revolution made by socialists as well. It was a revolution made by social democrats. It's, I don't want to put a party political label on this thing. It was bigger than all of us. And I couldn't agree more. I definitely yeah. think. Uh, end of sermon, end of speech. Sorry, happy to, let's get to some questions. Well, as I suggested, uh, uh, Twilight of Democracy, I'm not sure if that's coming up on the screen. Definitely, uh, that is a book about people. This is a conversation about people, about individuals. And I think it's a wonderful advertisement, both for agreement and disagreement. Nate, over to you for questions. We've got about 15 minutes. Actually, we've got 17 minutes. So let's, I saw there were a lot. Let's try and squeeze as many in as possible and I'll try and keep my mouth shut. 
Thanks, Andrew. Um, yeah, we got some questions about uh, economics and uh, populism, uh, in particular from Natalia um, Vinyachuk. Uh, with the current crisis and economic downturn across Europe brought on by the, uh, will the current crisis and economic downturn across Europe brought on by the pandemic strengthen populism uh, and the right political parties? Uh, and have you observed any strategies to prevent this? Uh, and then uh, Anne observed that uh, urbanism features cutting in the business elites. Uh, John Sullivan asks, is there anything else that you can say about the business communities in Poland and Hungary and how they're reacting to this authoritarian turn? And then um, just now, uh, Jason Whedon asks uh, that Hungarians and Poles, while they've made a lot of economic progress uh, over the past decades, are still making 300, 400 euro a month net and are struggling. What's the pitch for liberalism and democracy for people like this left behind? Uh, yeah. So, Great question. So who wants to start, Michael or, uh, or Anne? Oh, I'll let Anne. I, I can start. I mean, so the question about the business communities is fascinating because they're in Poland and Hungary are actually quite different. Um, in Hungary, Orban has, has done what Putin did in the sense that he's tried to create his own oligarchs. So he's, you know, it's too, it's too, it's too long a story to tell here, but he's essentially favor, you know, favored a part of the business community that's friendly to him. And then those people then fund, for example, his media and his other projects. Um, and he's created a kind of internal circle. And if you're outside of that circle, you can have trouble at least attaining, you know, wealth in Hungary. I mean, I think you, can, you can probably run a small business still, but it's a, it's a very closed system. Um, in Poland, um, I'm sure that the ruling party wants to do the same. Um, they haven't succeeded yet. Um, but one of the effects is that um, po the, the Polish business community, which is right now pretty apolitical mostly, or has tried to stay apolitical, is now very worried about politics and many of them are leaving. Um, there's now a phenomenon of people moving out of the country, moving their businesses or their bases abroad, um, taking their money with them. There's been a big drop in investment. Um, it hasn't yet you know, it's, it, you know, given everything else that's going on, it's probably not the most important factor in the economy as well. But there is a, um, there is a, um, you know, and there's a lot of dissatisfaction, dissatisfaction among both at all levels, actually among entrepreneurs, even small business um, are becoming increasingly anti-government. And, and, and in fact, there's a, there's now a so-called far right party in Poland, um, another right wing party, which is now which is libertarian and is attracting some of the small business discontent with the very statist um, policies of the ruling party. So business is not happy, particularly the business that's worried about losing out to um, to, to to politics. I mean, the you know, the problem of um, Poles and Hungarians and others in Eastern Europe earning less than Western Europeans. I mean, um, this this is a problem of it's very interesting because we all thought for a long time that people would be pleased with their economic progress because they would be comparing themselves to their parents or their grandparents. You know, every, the, the current, in Poland, the current generation of young people at all social levels, you know, from poorest to richest, lives better than their parents. I mean, there's just no question about it. But you're absolutely right that they don't necessarily live better than you know, than Germans or, um, you know, or Italians or, well, it depends which Italians, but they don't, certainly they're all comparing themselves to German, they're comparing themselves to the richest people in Europe, um, you know, to the wealthiest, um, to the wealthiest states. And of course, the, you know, the only cure for that is a cure that involves time and investment and, you know, careful planning and, you know, the sort of boring politics of normality and good governance that will, continue to make Poland wealthier, you know, with, with, with time. Um, and that is a, you know, I agree that it's a frustrating message to give to people who want change faster. Um, and it hasn't, you know, and it's proved to be very difficult to sell. I mean, it's a, you know, it's, it's complicated in Poland because Poland, there's such a 50-50 split between, you know, it's a very fine edge now between pro and government, pro and anti-government. Um, people in the country. So there is a large percentage of people in the country who do understand that um, and, and, you know, and are, and are, and are, you know, who want the good government and who want the decent legal system and the decent court system that will eventually make Poland more prosperous. But I agree, it's, you know, it's very difficult to ask, um, to ask people to wait. Um, what was the, the, now I forgot what the first question was. 
Sorry, there was another, or maybe Michael will take well, up. Maybe, my, Mike, uh, maybe Michael, you also want to address the fact that the Hungarians, for some reason or other, threw out a very valuable university that must have generated significant revenue for the country. Well, I'd like, yes, I'd like to turn this into a commercial for Central European University, but I think that probably is a bad idea. We will survive and live on happily thereafter. The only thing I would add to what uh, Anne's been said very, very briefly is the role of the multinationals. In, in Hungary, a tremendous amount of Hungarian GDP is generated by the big uh, German automakers. And <clears throat> so th this is a low wage assembly platform for German industry and um, uh, people earn uh, wages out of the Eurozone. Um, and so, at least uh, uh, Hungary has consolidated itself as essentially a low-wage uh, assembly platform for German multinationals. And the German multinationals who could say something about um, Orban's authoritarianism, needless to say, keep their mouths entirely shut because uh, it suits them fine. And I think that has a transmission belt effect on German politics and the reluctance of Germans actually uh, to do anything about the increasing scandal in Europe of, of having these authoritarian regimes who um, run against Brussels Monday through Friday and then cash the checks from Brussels on Saturday and Sunday. Um, but, you know, that, that's, a, that's another element. Perhaps we should take another question. Yeah, uh, a nice grouping of the questions, uh, Nate. Let's try and get as many in as we can. Yeah, um, so I've got some here about watching this uh, crisis of liberal democracy from the outside. Um, Maria Alcidi from the Max Planck Foundation uh, wanted to ask about um, this, the recent, um, she's working on a project supporting constitutional dialogue in Afghanistan following the so-called peace deal between the US and Taliban in February. Liberal democracy seems to be losing its appeal uh, from the outside in places like Afghanistan. And then we have a couple of questions as well uh, about Belarus. So where is the EU, where is the international community um, on important issues uh, like those? Anne? So, so yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I mean, I think the, the problems of democracy, especially in the United States, which is, a, you know, as a kind of model country or a, you know, ideal for so many people around the world, have, um, have undermined the appeal of democracy around the world. I mean, I don't think there's any question um, that that's happening. And the the Trump administration has not been um, at all interested in democracy promotion or in talking about democracy or in, uh, you know, in, 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 you know, promoting it or advocating it in any way. I mean, on the contrary, it's, you know, it's made its relationships with dictatorships much more important than its relationships with, with fellow Democrats. And Trump doesn't see himself as a leader of a country that's part of a community of democracies at all. I mean, that may, you know, could change if there was a Biden presidency, but I worry that a lot of damage has been done already um, just by the fact of, you know, that, that America was led for four years by somebody who was not a Democrat or who didn't believe in democracy, um, you, know, in, in, you know, at all, and who's seeking to win the U.S. election by cheating. I mean, there's no, you know, by, by undermining the post office of all things. So, and that's going to be, that will have a very long tail, that story, and it will have a, I mean, a big impact for a long time on on the appeal of, and, and will increase cynicism about democracy and also about American foreign policy. As I say, even if Joe Biden wins and, you know, runs, you know, wins for eight more years, it will, this after effect, um, I think, I think will be left. Um, although Belarus is an in fascinating counterpoint to that story. So just yesterday I was, I've been, I've been talking to Belarusians over the last couple of days and um, will write something I hope quite soon. Um, one of the fascinating things about Belarus is that what the Belarusian, you know, opposition leaders, to the extent that they are leaders, I mean, it's a, it's a very spontaneous mass movement, what they are saying, I mean, I actually asked one of them point blank in Warsaw yesterday, there's a Belarusian journalist in, in Warsaw, I asked him, I said, so, you know, aren't you, you know, look at democracies, you know, under attack in Poland and the institutions are proving weak and, you know, doesn't that put you off wanting a democracy in Belarus? And he sort of looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, no, you know, I mean, I mean, to him, the problems in Poland were some kind of minor thing, you know, they'll get over it eventually. 
Um, and what we need is some kind of choice. We need rule of law. You know, all the language that he was using um, was language that you could have heard people using in the 1980s or early 1990s. Um, and so there, you know, there are places that don't have democracy at all. There's been no functional democracy in Belarus for a quarter of a century. Places that are totally deprived of it um, can still find it appealing and find it aspirational. Um, and you know, maybe we should take some inspiration from that. I mean, Belarus is not a country that the West has invested in or spent a lot of money in, or you know, the Belarus opposition movement hasn't been you know nurtured especially at all. Um, it's it's a it is you know deeply spontaneous, and it is coming from the sense that dictatorship doesn't work and dictatorship produces stupid outcomes, and authoritarianism isn't efficient. It's inefficient and it's corrupt. Um, and they want some alternative, and it may be that um, it may be that inspiration from places like Belarus and places like Ukraine that have felt deprived of democracy and want to have it. That maybe that will help us rethink, um, you know, rethink our own goals and our own aspirations. I mean, think you know, we we have a lot of problems, but think about the opposite. You know, think about what it's like to not have democracy, and think um, how unappealing that is. Michael, you want to add something? Is Belarus uh, our inspiration now? Absolutely not. No, Anne said it all very well. Let's get another question. Nate? Yeah, I think I've got a really good uh, question here to potentially close on, depending on how much time it takes. Um, from Catherine Clifton, how can we reinstill meaning in liberalism while we're physically isolated right now during the mm, coronavirus pandemic? Question. How can we harness this time apart to recognize our common humanity and accept our inevitable differences? Mm, that's a good coronavirus Climax. Uh, who wants to take that? My, Michael, why don't you start? I've been talking a lot. <laughs> well, um, I've been very struck uh, during the uh, coronavirus. Um, a, we've discovered this is a mortal threat that affects all human beings equally. And so it's been a, a discovery of our biological identity. It's then secondly been a discovery of just how different we are. Some have had a very easy time in lockdown. And for others, it's been an absolutely terrifying discovery of their vulnerability. We've also discovered banal, ordinary facts that are, are of immense political significance, namely that a lot of people have to get up every morning and go to a, a hospital or run a bus or run a care center um, and are low paid and uh, our very lives depend on these folks and they are poorly paid and they're often ununionized. And so there's a whole agenda uh, of change that has been surfaced by COVID-19 that will provide us with um, lots of political work that we need to do in the future. Um, I also think that isolation um, and I think we've all lived this. Isolation is terrible. We all want to, we want to see people. We want to touch people. We want to hug people. Uh, I, I talk to people who feel a, a sense of physical suffering that they can't, they can't get out and, and, and be with loved ones. I think we've all anthropological experience here, which is how terrible it is to be a human being and not be able to be with other human beings. Um, and then we've discovered that um, in a public health crisis, you need facts, you need evidence, and science matters. Mm. Um, you need competent public administration. And we've had a devastating discovery that our public administration is not often competent. And so that's another bit of political uh, agenda that we need to fix. We just need to have more competent public administration. And if that frankly means higher taxes to pay for it, we're gonna to have to do that. So I could go on and on, but I would come back to the fundamental point. It was that we've had a global experience of anthropological interdependence of our need for each other. And we need to have a politics that um, uh, expresses that. And we need to get out of meetings like this. I wanna be in the same room with Anne. You know, I wanna be in the same room with Andrew. I wanna be in the same room with the people who've uh, stuck it out and they're a hundred or hundred plus, um, that would have been a nicer evening or a nicer discussion. Uh, so we've got to understand that Zoom can substitute, but Zoom is not a substitute for the real thing, which is human interaction. 
Well, we definitely uh, next year we will do a How to Fix Democracy event in person with both you and Anne, uh, because this has been wonderful. But as you say, it's always better to be in the room itself rather than just the Zoom room. Anne, why don't you end? Uh, you began talking about the crisis, perhaps the twilight of democracy. Uh, what, in your view, has been the impact of the coronavirus crisis on this twilight of democracy? Yes. Yes, thank you. That was actually the question that I, that I, that I missed before, and it's behind the, the previous question. I mean, the very interesting thing about the coronavirus crisis is how um, it's changed over time already. I mean, it's been, you know, we're four or five months into it, and yet there's the politics of it have already altered. Um, initially, it did look like this was going to be a great moment of triumph for people who want to shut borders, people who want to institute authoritarian control. You know, historically, at times when people are afraid and they're afraid of death, then they are willing to sacrifice their freedom in exchange for security. And we saw that people were willing to do that in the, in the initial months of the crisis. And we saw the borders shutting down, airports shutting, you know, travel stopping. Um, and it seemed like it was going to be a good moment for, um, for even for the far right. As it has gone on, um, as it has developed and as it has become clear that the solutions to the crisis, at least, you know, particularly in the absence of a vaccine, um, the solutions to the crisis do involve, um, as Michael said, competent public administration, um, a sense of trust. You know, the public has to trust the government and take advice. Um, it has, and also a, you know, the, in countries where politics is science-based, evidence-based, and above all, reality-based, where Politicians are not, you know, engaging in constant lying or, or game playing with the public. Um, they found it much easier to cope with the crisis. And so whether you're talking about Germany or South Korea um, or, you know, or Taiwan, um, you know, or, or even Slovakia, you know, these are countries that have done better than, for example, the United States, you know, or Brazil, you know, or Belarus, actually. This is, of course, one of the sources of discontent there. Um, or Russia. Um, and the, you know, one of the things that the, the, the virus may eventually reveal is the downside of these political mythologists. I mean, these people who were making up stories and we didn't actually, um, we, didn't, we didn't talk at length about this question of, um, um, you, know, et, you know, ethnic monocultures and, 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 and Orban's claim that he wants Hungary for Hungarians, which is in fact a, a lie in part because in fact, you can get a you can get residency rights in Hungary. You just have to pay for them if you're a foreigner. And in fact, there never was a big desire of you know Syrian refugees to live in Hungary anyway. So a lot of that was ginned up. You know these kind of these political myths that were created and the and the conspiracy theories that have been pumped out. You know all of that has turned out to be completely useless in dealing with a real problem that you know that has a you know that requires you know a change in public behavior. To get a solution, um, and maybe it will be in some places that the um, the the these so-called populist or um, you know the illiberal language will will be you know will be you know shown for the for the for the myths and the fantasizing that it really is, um, and maybe maybe it will convince some people anyway that you know what we need is you know debates about reality and real issues and arguments about how to fix the economy rather than fake promises. Um, and one of the things I hope might eventually come out um, from this crisis is a, is a return to the politics of, of, um, you know, of you know, real facts, real discussion, real debates. How do, you know, how do we improve the economy and not how do we give the public yet another national myth that it can distract itself with? Well, this has been a real discussion. Uh, I want to thank both of you. You're both uh, wonderful commentators on this. Uh, Anne Applebaum speaking to us from somewhere in Poland, from the Polish countryside. Uh, the author of this wonderful book, Twilight of Democracy. I don't know if you can see it on the screen. Must read for the summer of 2020. And uh, Michael Ignatiev talking to us from Vienna. Uh, how to Fix Democracy, our live monthly, will be back in September, back to Vienna with a conversation with Timothy Schneider talking about his new book about health and politics. So thanks for the audience for, for coming and staying, and thanks again for a wonderful conversation, uh, Michael Ignatiev and Anne Applebaum. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to Keynote 
hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.